we're definitely not like Airbus or <laughs> Lockheed Martin or anything like this. We're working to get there. We want to be bigger than those guys. Space is a huge place, but the area that we can actually use is limited. Decades ago, we didn't realize that what we put into the oceans would not just magically disappear. It stays there, affecting marine life, which in turn affects us. And we really don't want to make that same mistake in space. As more and more satellites are launched, the amount of debris will just keep towering up. If, of course, we don't do something about it. Welcome to Have We Gone to Mars Yet? A podcast about all the things that need to be done before we can put a person on the surface of Mars. Like keeping the sky clean enough for future takeoffs. My name is Marcus Pettersson. My name is Susanna Levenhaupt. And this is Have We Gone to Mars Yet? New satellites are launched more often than ever. Satellites used for things like communication, weather reports, surveillance, research. The opportunity seems endless, and the benefits for Earth are indisputable. However, there's a lack of any real international agreements or laws on how companies should take care of their used satellites, which could have very real effects on future space travel. We've all heard about the Kessler effect. Cleaning up space debris and making sure everybody takes responsibility for what they put up there are important issues. So is making sustainable satellite systems. Matija Milenovic is the CEO of Porkchop, a satellite company with a goal to become a major player in an interplanetary economy. What they do is developing reusable in-space logistics vehicles. What is that exactly? So it's... um Firstly, when when we say reusable, a lot of people think of something like the space shuttle, which burns into the atmosphere. And we we don't do that. We reuse it in space. So it once it goes up, it stays up, and it's reused in space many times. And then when it's dead, we we burn it up. So that's the in space reusable part. And then the logistics part is that the same way how we have, you know, everybody except me probably has a car these days. Um, cars need services. You need to refuel them. You need to upgrade them. You need to repair them. You need to do a lot of these, provide them with a lot of services. The same thing applies with uh, the new generation of satellites. Really, now that we are not sending satellites, you know, like once a year or something, we're sending bajillions of satellites, you know, on a monthly basis. So the way that we're looking at satellites is really changing, and satellites are actually becoming more like cars than satellites. Essentially, so that's where the the need for logistical services comes into play, and uh, we're building the the vehicle that enables these services to to be performed. Essentially, okay. So you have two legs here. We have the satellite itself, and then the the service that you offer. But if you start with the satellite, what's the difference between your satellite and other satellites? Um, probably the biggest difference is that ours doesn't exist yet. We're still building it, <laughs> um, but when it is built, it will be. Um, it will be a not so big satellite considering that traditionally satellites have been you know around a ton if not more um our satellite will be in the range of you know a few hundred kilograms so probably like one or 200 kilograms and basically what what it will do is be able to move in space to 
for example, uh, deploy constellations a lot faster and a lot easier than it's done today, it will be able to move a satellite, an existing satellite, from one orbit to another. So this kind of uh, last mile delivery, or some people call it the army of space, basically. Um, it'll be able to then also fly close and rendezvous with the satellite and fly around to inspect it, to take pictures. Um, that's more in the short term. And then in the long term, the satellite will be able to, you know, uh, do more advanced things. So we'll be able to attach, for example, robotic arms that can then perform more complex services that are not so commonplace today. So th that's essentially what we're doing. And, and on top of this, because we, we use the word reusable, we... Um, the way that we're doing that is basically by having two types of, of spacecraft. So we have the, the fully reusable, what we call mothership, and then the expandable uh, or non-reusable daughtership. So the, the mothership is the thing that we send into space once, and it can perform all of these operations. The daughtership is more like a, kind of like a, a container with our customers. So it's like an interface between us and our customers or their satellites, um, and that just simplifies the whole process. It means that we can always have a, the same procedure docking these mother and daughter ships, regardless of what the daughter ship is attached to. So that essentially, um, long story short, it just makes the whole process a lot cheaper and simpler. And it allows us to then also, for example, refuel our own mothership to keep it alive for much longer instead of having to bring a huge amount of propellant from, from day one, a huge amount of fuel from day one. Um, and by combining these two things, we, you know, we, we want to build the kind of infrastructure in, in low Earth orbit today. But the, the end goal of all of this, the reason why we're doing all of this is what we call establishing an interplanetary economy. So it's that if we can lay the, the building blocks today in low Earth orbit and uh, we build something that's quite scalable, then we can also use that to pretty much, you know, our end goal is to mine asteroids, essentially. It's to... Um, you know, unlock the, the resources of the rest of the solar system. And that's really what we're hoping to, to lay the groundworks with uh, Porkchop M, this vehicle, the mothership, daughtership today. So how does it work? How does it move around? So there are two um, two main types of propulsion that you would have on, on something like a mothership. So you have the, what you would call a orbital propulsion, which is the, the larger engine that's capable of moving vast distances. Um, but then if you want to dock with a satellite, you can't just you know fly into it at a million miles an hour. You have to uh, slow down and then you use these very precise rendezvous thrusters. And uh, where we actually specialize in is these rendezvous thrusters. So we, we were developing very low thrust, precise thrusters for almost three years now. Uh, we have a patent for some electronics there. We actually we flew a miniaturized version on, on the Falcon 9 mission back in January. And so our... One of the the core technologies that we're developing is this um, these rendezvous thrusters, and the the really neat thing about them is that actually, if you look at the, the thrusters used for rendezvous today, they haven't changed at all since the Apollo days. So the the way that they work is pretty much the same principle as having deodorant that you spray under your arm. You spray gas in one direction and you move in the other direction, and that just means you have to have these you know pressurized tanks. You have to have a lot of plumbing. These things always leak. They're never that accurate. Our system is pretty much an electric system, so you just send a command and it fires, and it doesn't use a, a liquid or a gas as the fuel, it uses a, a metal. So there's no way it can spill, there's no way it can accidentally fire. It's um, it's literally like playing a game, you send a command and it, it just fires. Um, and that allows us to miniaturize the whole system, it allows us to have much more precise control. Uh, and since it's made from pretty standard manufacturing techniques, it's not 
that difficult to to produce at scale either, which is probably the most attractive thing. And then for the this large uh, orbital engine, uh, there are two options. One can either use a, an electric system, so similar to ours, um, but obviously scale up a lot more. Or you can use the the more traditional chemical systems. So each has their pros and cons. Chemical is a lot uh, higher thrust, so you can get there a lot faster, but it's very inefficient. Whereas electrical is the the complete opposite. It's very very efficient, but it's going to take you quite a while to get there. Um, and we want to be compatible with both. Essentially, we want to be able to offer our customers: Do you want to get there cheap, or do you want to get there fast? And th- there's you know different needs for different people. Your propulsion is not gas. It was what do you say? It's titanium, actually. Um, basically, we you take the titanium and you you apply a a voltage uh, between the titanium and, and, and other metal. And uh, what this causes is for the a very small chip of the titanium to be eroded away, to be removed. And this chip, in a very small fraction of a second, becomes plasma. And because you have this voltage there as well, this also repels the the plasma. And if you repeat this process and you you send these pulses and in, in the right way, you can uh, fire this thruster. You know, it's it's literally like shaving bits of metal off using electricity, and you, you just fire them away. And this titanium is also, you know, you can buy it from your local hardware store. We we were buying for our first prototypes, we were just buying them from some like random hardware shops. So it's really um, nothing exotic, nothing like. <laughs> You know these uh, NASA grades propellants or anything like this. It's really basic. So the patent you have is it, is that for the propulsion system? So the patent is specifically for the the miniaturization of the electronics required to power the propulsion system. Um, essentially, as I mentioned, it takes the circuit from being quite large and bulky to being a lot smaller. Um, also more power efficient as well so it consumes a lot less power for for how much um, it needs to create the thrust um but the the thruster itself is actually not novel at all i believe it's been around since the 60s or 70s i believe nasa has been developing it for a long time and that makes sense right if you just have two bits of metal and you're passing current through them it's you know it's not that difficult to come up with and a lot of the technology we use is is from the 70s or 80s um but usually it's some small piece of the puzzle that's made it prohibitively you know impractical or expensive or something like this so where where companies like porkchop really innovate is by just solving a small piece of the puzzle and that unlocks a much grander um opportunity for for others to start from the beginning again when did you start and until now where are you in the process we actually started pork chop six months after coming to sweden uh almost exactly three years ago uh april 2019 uh so i had moved to sweden to start a master's at kth so one of my favorite things to do is to complain about <laughs> i think complaining is a great thing and especially when others hear your complaints and they agree with you and i went on this complaint about how there is no um really great European company, uh, like like the SpaceX of Europe, that we can all get behind, that we can all rally around, and um, how we're falling behind, ultimately. We, we've never been leaders in space, in my opinion, as, as Europe. Um, and that's really not a good thing for, for our future, in, in my opinion. I, I went on this huge rant, and one of the people who heard that rant was my soon-to-be co-founder. Um, 
And he comes back uh, like a few weeks later uh, and he hands me this pamphlet for the, the European Space Agency's Business Incubation Center in, in Sweden. And uh, he's like, yeah, I mean, I heard you wanted to start a company and blah, blah, blah. Maybe, maybe you're interested in this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> if you want to join, like it's, you know, there's, a, there's an empty seat right here. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so that's how we started off. Uh, and that was, yeah, like six months after coming to Sweden. Um, and initially we, we had no idea what we were doing, both on the business side and also in, in terms of miniature electric propulsion. So we, we have this really cool basement lab in, in KTH and it's like pretty much nobody uses it. And we, we got access to that. And we just started playing around with some electronics and we, we were interested in, in building uh, miniature propulsion systems back then. Um, and uh, pretty soon after that, things started to get a little bit more serious. Um, so we, we started talking with people and we, we ended up getting a launch opportunity scheduled by, I believe it was July or August 2019. Uh, that came and went and that launch was pretty much postponed and our launch was postponed twice. Okay, so when... When did you launch and with what? We launched on January 13th of this year uh, with SpaceX's Transporter 3 mission. Since we were flying basically as a as an experimental payload, which I do remind people that what we flew is an experimental payload, um, because nothing like it has ever been flown before on this tiny of a scale, uh, especially the this circuit. You know, previously the size of the circuit was like the size of a Harry Potter book. <laughs> That's roughly what I compare it to. And we brought that down to, if you look at that iPhone and you chop it in half, that's how small the, the whole system is. So when you miniaturize to, to that scale, um, there's a lot of unknowns. So that was the, the real thing I was repeating to myself, mainly that it's, it's an experiment, uh, but also to others. And um, despite this, what we do know, what we can say is that the, the ground tests of the, the system were all successful. So it passed all of the necessary, you know, electromagnetic testing and um, vibration, thermal, all of that stuff. Uh, so when we when we can discuss the results of the space test, we will be happy to share that. I mean, the, the objective we set was if it fires once in space, it's successful. Um, and that's really the the main thing we wanted to, to prove. And what we're trying to do is with this to essentially rotate the satellite. So we're firing on one side of the satellite and hoping for it to rotate and uh, rotate enough that we can measure it as well. When will the mothership be done? The first the first real mothership that you will send up. How big will it be and what will how will it work? I would say it will be a little bit smaller than a than a washing machine in terms of size. Um in terms of how heavy roughly in the one to 200 kilogram range. We expect it to be flying um, in mid 2024, if all goes well. And if we, you know, there's a lot of um, things that need to happen between now and then for this to, to take place. But yeah, we're, we're hoping that the, uh, that the need for last mile delivery in space grows even more between now and 2024. And we're seeing the positive signs there that it will happen. So once we, once we can prove this technology at full scale, um, contribute to the to the low Earth orbit economy, that really then sets us up for our deep space ambitions. What would a typical working day for the mothership be? Um, so the mothership is really multi-purpose. So um, the main 
the main business case is really with um, kind of rapid deployment of constellations. So it's instead of the way that SpaceX does it, for example, where they just throw them all at once, um, we want to fly each satellite and deliver it and drop it off basically at exactly the orbit it needs to be. And then we move to the next orbit, drop off the next satellite and so on and so on. But then there are other space transportation related business cases that we're looking at. So as I mentioned, repositioning satellites um, or, or just in general, last mile delivery of satellites. So the, the mothership will mainly be focusing on this, but sometimes it can be a few weeks or a few months between launches when you have more uh, payloads being sent up that you then need to go dock with. So during this time, we intend to repurpose the mothership as basically an inspection vehicle so that then it can rendezvous with a satellite that's relatively close by, that obviously somebody wants to be inspected, um, perform the necessary uh, inspection routine, and then uh, prepare to, to pick up the next uh, daughtership, essentially. Without refueling the mothership, how... How far can it go? How, how fast can it go? How are your maneuvering possibilities or how will it be in the future? So by itself, without refueling it, it actually can't go that far. Um, it can execute one mission really well and then that's it. So that's why we, you know, the mothership needs the daughtership to survive. Daughtership needs mothership. It's it's a synergy. So the the mothership is being designed with the intention of being refueled after every mission. Um In terms of how far it can go, it can uh, raise altitude by, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's it's quite a lot. So you can go from low Earth orbit to a substantially higher orbit. Um, you can also do what's called a plane change maneuver. So if you want to change the inclination, if you want to change the, um, for example, the, the local time above which you're flying the ground, uh, it's called local time of ascending node. So you can fly above the equator at sunrise or in the afternoon. That's more useful if you want to deploy, uh, let's say, an Earth observation satellite. If it needs to see the ground with the the sun's shadows at a particular angle, uh, then they'll tell us we need like, a, I don't know, 4 p.m. LTAN. And then we, we work out how we're going to make that happen. And then aside from that, we coming back to your point about uh, debris removal, that's that's a really interesting topic. And it's something that I think, unfortunately, there's no business case for this today. That's why we're not seeing much of it. Um, and I think, ultimately, it will have to be governments that will step up and pay companies to to do this because satellite operators are in no way obligated to have their satellites removed, um, which is not good. So we, you know, if, if the satellite operator isn't going to pay us to remove their satellite, it's really not worth us sacrificing our entire vehicle just for, you know, for almost nothing. Um, so I really hope that the the rules around that and the, the way that this is talked about changes in the in the near term. So uh, you're in the development stage right now of your uh, technology, but uh, how far in the future are we looking here? When, when will you be up there? Um, So we're, aside from the thing we already have up, our next mission is uh, aimed for the end of 2023. So there we'll be taking two um, roughly shoebox-sized satellites and we're going to um, rendezvous and dock them and then undock them and separate them even more, dock them again to prove that we can reliably and repeatably dock satellites on first a small scale. Um, but if we can prove that principle, it, it opens up a lot of doors for us. 
Um, and then we're, we're going to be scaling that up and we're going to start then commercial operations of this actual mothership and daughtership in, uh, we, we hope, for mid-2024. Doing all this costs money, uh, obviously. Uh, how are you funded? Um, so for the first year and a half, we were completely bootstrapped. And that meant paying out of pocket. It meant getting um, some... We got some small grants from Vinova, which is like the Swedish innovation agency. Um, we we received some... Actually, in the beginning, uh, the astronaut Christoph Fuglesang gave us some small funding from KTH Space Center. Um, that was really nice. And uh, so, yeah, we were... <laughs> living off of scraps we were you know buying a lot of things yeah out of pocket and then um the the first investor we got was actually kth um so because we went through the pre-incubator program we built a great relationship with them and they they were the the first ones to invest and that kept us going for a while um and then last december we closed our first uh venture round so that was led by Um, a pan-Nordic fund called Icebreaker Ventures, Icebreaker VC. Um, so we're we're not as poor anymore, <laughs> but we're still, you know, we're still um, pretty pretty early stage in the grand scheme of things. Um, but now we we are looking at um, other sources of financing as well, and we, you know, you need to. There's a lot of capital required to build this thing, so we we are looking at ways of, of making that happen. There should be lots and lots more of of companies like you out there. And uh, we have to give uh, these kind of companies, uh, definitely for our sake, space companies, the opportunity to, to develop. So when you say you worked out of your own pocket uh, and then you got a small grant from Vinova, what is small? How much money did you actually get to develop? Because you did send, at some point, you did send up something to space. Um, so some things I can't discuss, obviously, but the basically the support from Vinova was, I would say, the equivalent of a hundred thousand crowns over the space of the first year. Uh, so that was pretty much, you know, you get a small chunk, and then you have to show some results, and then again and again, and the chunks got bigger, but the you know the standards got higher and stricter as well as as time went on. Did you get an Esabic money? Yes, yeah, we were also supported. So that was a grant, and that was um, fifty thousand euro or half a million crowns as well. Again, spaced out over, I think, a year and a half, uh, showing certain results as well. Yeah, because what I'm thinking is, it might sound a lot with half a million, but you were back then two persons, and you were also you should buy buy things, build things, send them to space. So it's not really that much money to work with. No, I mean it, it is great. Of course, it's to be honest. Joining Isabik is not about the money; it's about the recognition and the the seal of approval. You know, um, because you you do get certain benefits um, from from being part of that community. Um, but I mean, just to give you an example, we we have spent just on manufacturing metal parts. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable to, to spend like 80,000 crowns on like a single, uh, not a single part, but on a single uh, shipment of, of a few parts. So, I mean, comparing that obviously to software companies where your biggest cost is, you know, I don't know, hosting on AWS or something, it's, yeah, it's way more expensive and that makes us 
uh, untouchables definitely to a lot of investors. But you know that that's just how that's just how the cookie crumbles. That's the world we live in. I I'm just curious because you said before that uh, three years ago you started this and you had no idea what you were doing, uh, which I believe probably isn't completely true. Uh, but uh, how do you? get partners to sort of believe in you and join you in this um, uh, thing that you don't know if it's going to work and what it is really. Yeah, that, that's been one of our biggest challenges because um, I think you're right. I think we it's not like we knew nothing, but we we definitely weren't at a stage that other companies that were doing the same thing were. Usually it's typical that the at least one of the founding team has a PhD in electric propulsion and we had half of a masters in it, you know so um i would say the 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 hardest thing and it it's still a very difficult thing is getting credibility and getting people to um even listen to us so it's you know we're definitely the the underdogs in this situation and that's completely fine because you know you need to earn your uh, credibility and you need to show with results at the end of the day and the fact that we uh, I should also add that we sent this propulsion system propulsion system into space pretty much completely bootstrapped with very very little funding and the fact that we did it with uh, so little funding and with such a tiny team uh, it showed that we can do pretty big things Um, but still you know we're we're definitely not like Airbus or (laughs) Lockheed Martin or anything like this we're working to get there we want to be bigger than those guys but it's definitely you know building up credibility and trust from people takes years it's it's a process i love the ambition and ai driven satellites that dock with spaceships and go on different missions around the solar system i feel like i'm in a sci-fi novel i know but this is going on right now and Workshop isn't the only company doing things like this. The market is hotter than ever. And the demand for competent people in this sector is huge. So if you want to work within the space sector, your timing is perfect. But now it's time to wrap it up. Please check out our other episodes and don't forget to subscribe. There's plenty more to come. So don't worry if you haven't heard about the Kessler effect. We will get back to that in the future. My name is Marcus Petterton. My name is Susanna Levenhaupt. The music we play in the background is composed by Armin Pendek. Have We Gone to Mars Yet? is produced at Beppo by Rundfunk Media in collaboration with Rymdkapital. Read more about them and how you can get yourself involved on havewegonetomarsyet.com. Hallo, Programm mit Jodes auf Rundfunkmedia.